Hey, Mac, when does deer season start? Well, if you want the best deer herd possible, Lanny, you need to start right now. Right now. That's, That's why right. we're starting our promotion. I mean, we've got a deer season starts now promotion on plantbiologic.com where you can pick up our Game Changer soybeans, our forage soybeans, and our spring protein peas. While you're there, you might as well go ahead and pick up some brassicas like our final forage and winter bowls. Yeah, stock up for the cool season planting right now. Listeners to the GK Podcast, if you use coupon code GKPOD, you can save an additional 10% off our entire selection of warm season, cool season, and clover food plot seed. Get started today and visit plantbiologic.com for an unforgettable fall. I am Jeff Foxworthy, and welcome to Gamekeeper Podcast. If you want to learn more about farming for wildlife and habitat management, then, buddy, you are in the right place. Join the Gamekeeper crew direct from Mossy Oak Land Enhancement Studio as they discuss the latest wildlife and habitat management practices, news, and, of course, hunting. There's no telling what you'll learn, but I'm going to tell you, I bet it's interesting. Enjoy. We're live in three, two, one. All right, everybody. Well, welcome back to West Point, Mississippi, <laughs> to the Gamekeeper Studio. And Lanny, it's June. It is. Times are changing. Mean, seasons are changing. You know, everybody's kind of thinking about fishing, you know, yes. now this time of year, I would say. Yeah. What about you, Bobby? Yeah, I am. I, I certainly am. I love this time of year when you can plant spring and summer food plots and you can go fishing in the morning and the afternoons. I love it. Yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah. And we've got Dudley Phelps sitting here nodding his head. He looks happy. Hey guys, glad to be here. Today's going to be an interesting show. We've got, you know, we've done forty some odd of these podcasts. But this is the first one where we're going to specifically talk about fishing and fish pond management. Huge part of being a gamekeeper. I mean, yeah. there's no question about that. So, uh, I know we tend to talk a lot about deer. Of course, we talk a lot about turkeys and ducks and all kind of other stuff. But man, fishing is the most uh, accessible part of the outdoors for most people. So, I'm glad we're talking about it today. Yeah, yeah. it's a much bigger market. Yeah. Than hunting. I mean, your first experience outside, Bobby, was it, what were you, what, what do you remember first? Yeah, it was, no, it was fishing with fishing. my father. Yeah, fishing yeah. with your father. Yep. And I, I, I've made this comment numerous times. Fishing relaxes me way more than hunting does. Absolutely. There's something about the water period. Y'all know I'm a water person, so... Yeah, it does. It's the, it's the positive alms, man. Isn't that <laughs> yeah. right, Dudley? Is that what yeah, you're calling it? Yeah, it is. It's yeah. something like that. Well, so everybody, Lanny uh, was kind of asking, could we talk about chemical trails? Well, one of our, our buddy on the coast, you know, i got a lot of friends. Actually, got used to work here. We'll give him a shout-out, our buddy at Pinfish Studios, Matt Watson. So, you know, yeah. just took a picture of the sky and told him I was thinking about him, and he went to talking about chemtrails. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so Lanny, uh, I'm not saying he believes it, but he thinks they're – he's curious. Why are you putting words in my mouth? <laughs> I mean, that's what I want to know. You're saying – I think this is this is a, a Freudian slump uh, – what is it? Uh, Freudian and slip. slip. Yeah, no, I think you no. want to talk about chemtrails, apparently. No, 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 we don't. So, so what do you Well, think? we've been seeing all the uh, Elon Musk things – yeah, a lot of UFO sky. sightings. People are Saturday. talking about it. So. Hey, if they can, whatever it takes to get internet to where I live, we'll take it. If it takes UFOs, sold. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, we're not going to go down the yeah, chemtrails. So we, we've not got chemtrails and UFOs so far. We're going we're yeah. to talk about fish eventually, uh, aren't Eventually, we? yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, there's been some mossy oak moments around the last week. I yeah. saw where uh, Jason McKellar's son, Caston, caught a really nice fish, six-pound bass. Great story, too. His son, I think he bought him a new rod and reel. 
super into fishing, you know, and he's been wearing Jason out. So they've been fishing nonstop and they found an old farm pond and Jason was sure there wasn't any fish in. So he would, you know, he kind of maybe, you know, wear him out a little bit on fishing. Nope. He caught the big one. <laughs> <laughs> Might have been the only big one in the yeah. whole pond. He put him back though. That's awesome. And, that, and David McElwain, yeah, young David McElwain. Yeah, he joined you, the belly meat club. Like there he is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Hey, yeah. this ought to get him a woman, if anything. That's a big uh, That's a big flathead catfish. Yeah, a southern woman has a huge appreciation for belly meat. So. I'm not even going to go there on that one. But David McElwain's <laughs> got you know, a grin you know. over there. If and, you know, you know. And uh, so, you know, that could be a good date, taking them limb lining or tight lining. What, what, what do you call it? Limb lining? Yeah, I oh, guess yeah. that's Fighting it. Fighting with the snakes and everything else. Yeah, there. that would be a great date. Oh. Yeah, shake the bushes before you take them up in there. I would warn of that. Yeah, you could be a hero if one drops in the boat. Yeah. I don't think I'll be the hero in that situation. I've had it happen a few times. <laughs> Just a couple. Yeah. So Mac is not here. Mac, is, where is Mac? Well, he's looking for a goat that we could wet down so that we could smell, so that we could positively identify that scent. But so I don't think he's found a goat yet. What scent? You know, the, we, last week we were talking about a snake smells like a wet goat. I, no, it smells like a brim bed. And uh, no, it smells like a wet goat. Yeah, we're gonna have salt. That might be the same odor. You're just using something different to describe it. It could be, but I think it's different. Everything's a label. Mm. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, Dudley, I saw where uh, Little Dud caught yeah. some brim. Yeah, we took the canoe down to Ebenezer last weekend and uh, threw some beetle spins all afternoon. He likes casting. Oh, yeah. So, we we didn't use the crickets or the worms. We got out the little ultralights and threw beetle spins at them and caught a mess of bluegills. That's caught good. one shell cracker. Yeah, that's Did y'all keep them? Yeah, absolutely. All right. We kept a bunch of little bass, too. Did you scale them the old school way? We scaled them the old school way. I was telling Hayden about that this morning. I hadn't given him that experience yet. Yeah. A lot of your fish don't have scales. No, mine are mostly slick. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, so let's keep this thing moving. We've got, uh, since Mac isn't here, I'm going to do the commercial. Oh, no. And so I'm just going to kind of wing it. So what I <laughs> wanted to kind of enlighten everybody about are the mossy oak fishing patterns. Uh-huh. They are so diverse in their colors, but they are so much fun to wear. And what I've enjoyed about them are the fabrics. But Those performing fabrics are amazing. It really is. They're so soft and so cool and wick moisture. I got introduced because I grew up wearing cotton T-shirts, you know, everywhere. And then when we developed some of these products, we were lucky enough to go down on the coast and do a little tuna fishing. And I was like, there's no way a long sleeve shirt is going to be cooler than a short sleeve shirt. It's just not going to happen. Doesn't make sense to me. Well, it is. <laughs> yeah. A lot yeah. Of <laughs> so I wish I could wear that stuff every day. Yeah. yeah. Good stuff. Well, there's no reason you can't, Dudley. If you wanted to. So, look, if you'll go to uh, uh, on Instagram, Mossy Oak Fishing, or if you go to mossyoak.com, you can find out more about some of the fishing patterns. And I I, I would just encourage everybody to do it because they're so cool. They really are. Okay. All right. Uh, right. That does that. That's a pretty good commercial. So, with with that being said, uh, why don't we try to bring in – so, the guy's name, he's from Georgia – is he a bulldog? I think he, well, he probably is a Georgia bulldog yeah, now yeah. that I think about it. Oop, oop. But sitting over in the guest chair is Shan O'Gorman. All right. If I got that right. There he is. 
the aquatic biologist on Instagram. Yeah, that, that's his handle on Instagram, aquatic biologist. So you guys ought to go follow him. He's got a lot of good information there. But what his, uh, you know, and when I in, in talking to him, what's impressed me is, uh, and he can tell more about his story. Here we are. Yeah, you're gonna tell the story for him. But he's a hard, he's a hardworking guy who manages fish ponds, and he's kind of that guy who has learned through hands-on experience what works and what doesn't work. And look, that applied science, which I love to talk th- about. That's exactly right. right. So managing a fish pond, the rewards are just—it's something that's that it's not that difficult to do, and a guy can just. There's so many benefits from it in terms of the pond being more productive, catching larger fish, more fish, etc. And so, so uh, without any further ado, uh, Shan, welcome to the Gamekeeper Studio. Thank you for having me, Bobby. Yeah, we're glad. Before we get started, Lanny, the the on the, on his hat that is not an at symbol. Do you yeah. know what that symbol is? <laughs> they love stumping me on sports related stuff. Yeah, do you know what I'm that, very what that is? I think it's a baseball team. It, it is. There you go. Well, do you know which one it is? <sighs> yeah. Is okay. there a, is there an A's? <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! Yeah, okay. You got it. Yeah. You got it. <laughs> is that what it is? <laughs> no, Astros. Astros. No, no. no Astros. You know, just think about where he lives. Angels. No. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's move on. So, I'm an easy target. Yeah. Like when it comes to sports, I can stump Lanny on every time. All of them. Yeah. It's a throwback Atlanta hat. Oh, I should have known that. But it didn't. Yeah, do you know what the Atlanta mascot and what their moniker is? The Braves. There you go. All right. I actually went to a baseball game one time. I bet well, that was fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I ran up and down the bleachers the whole time. <laughs> All right. Look, I bet okay. you were good at cup ball. Oh, man. I wasn't good at much ball. <laughs> so let, let's get started here. Shane, we're, we're thankful for you being here. And uh, look, in, in what you do, let's let's talk about the pros of managing a fish pond. What are the positive things that can, can come out of it? Let's go ahead. No, I'm sorry. Can we let me tell a story first? Well, let, let's do that. Let's let, do that. Let's back up. Let's back up. <laughs> Shane, tell your story. Well, welcome and tell your story. Yeah, how'd you get here? How did I get here? Um, I've always fished. Yeah. Like Bobby said, my first memory is yeah. fishing with my dad always loved it and i grew up in georgia so it was the country back then it was coming georgia but if you went there now it looks like a city but it wasn't back then mm-hmm. and they you know went through school and everything and and they made me pick a major you know when you get to college yeah Decision time. Yeah. Ugh. And I happened to be dating a girl whose dad was a fisheries biologist on the coast, and he was doing a speech. And I went and listened to him. I had no idea you could major in fish. Right. And I went, that's what I'm doing. Wow. So I went to Georgia. I was at Valdosta at the time, and I transferred to Georgia because that was the only place that had a program for fisheries. And when I got there, I was a lifeguard in the summertime as a job. So, the, one of the first classes I took at Georgia was pond management, and it was so similar to pool management. You know, algicides and water testing and pH and mm-hmm. alkalinity and hardness and all that. So, I saw an opportunity to make money with what I was learning in school. So, I started managing ponds because the neighborhoods that I worked at as a lifeguard had ponds in them, too. Mm-hmm. So, I started picking up money. 
before I ever left school. And that's how I got here. Huh. That's, that's a cool story for sure. Yeah. Really interesting. And, uh, you know, you just, you found out what you wanted to do by happenstance, kind of like I did with forestry. So we have a lot in common. I yeah. like that. And now you can like go to school on a fishing scholarship. That, that, wasn't around, that, yeah. that wasn't around when I was yeah. around. No, no, I, I, that, that's, that's a new You'd thing. still be in college when you got it. Yeah, it, it, it really is. Then there's high school fishing teams and college fishing. There's just so much more opportunity. Yeah, that's a that is, there is so much more opportunity and access, you know, so that's cool. That's a really cool story. So you actually, I can and just, you know, visualize what, visualize what you were talking about. It's like you're applying. I didn't even think about that. The pool chemistry or the water chemistry, you applied that to the fishery side of things. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, yeah, I just thought, you know, there's fish in the pond too. So that gives me, you know, another surface. Right. You know, outside of weed and algae control, just just like the pool. Right. You know? Right. Um, and it, it worked out. Well, here I am. Here you are. <laughs> so what's always kind of stuck in the back of my head, and um, if and I've got an old, it's like from 1957. It's a, a bulletin that the, uh, the, the county agent would hand out about yeah. how to manage your pond. And so dating back, going back to when they first started telling people about fertilization and whatnot, I don't think they ever, we talked about this yesterday, I don't think they ever considered that people wouldn't keep a lot of fish. Mm. In other words, that farm pond was meant to harvest fish out of, but now Absolutely. we've got people are trophy managing for trophy fish and releasing back the majority of the bass, especially the larger bass. And that really changes the whole management dynamic, doesn't it? I think so. Um, most ponds in the southeast are bass heavy. I've run a shocking boat for a long, long time. And anybody here could call me and say, I have a pond and I have a problem. And I could say, it's bass heavy. Mm -hmm. And I'll be right 90% of the time. I don't need to go to your pond. It's overpopulation. Yeah. There's too many. Too yeah. many. Mm -hmm. And you can't have as many fish as you want in a pond, you know. And people don't understand how they how they grow and, and how it works. Um, they think if you put the bass back and it lives longer, it'll grow, and it won't. Bass or fish are unique that way. If they don't get the food resources they need, their growth stops. Mm -hmm. So you can have an 8-inch bass that's 8 years old. Putting it back is not doing it any good. Right. It's, it's starving. Right. And it's not growing. I saw Dudley use a good analogy. You want them not to survive, but to thrive. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like what you're talking about. I mean, uh, a lake is more finite than a, a track of land, you know, so there's there's very defined borders on it. So the carrying capacity is probably more finite, too, I would imagine. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. <clears throat> you can control that carrying capacity. I was telling Bobby yesterday, let's say we had a pond, and a balanced pond is not. 50% bass and 50% bluegill. Okay, that's not going to work. That's a stunted pond. You need like 30% bass, 70% bluegill mm -hmm. or forage. We'll call it forage instead of bluegill. But um, that's balanced. Okay. Right. Now, you got 30 pounds of bass per acre, say. You can have 31 pounders or you can have three tens. Hmm. But you can have both. Or five sixes. Huh. Or, or a little or, bit of a or mix. Six, five. Or six five. Yeah. Boy, you're doing the math over there today, yeah. aren't you? <laughs> and you'll see that in um, in your shock surveys. You know, you you'll put a boat on there, and and, and it doesn't take very long. 
Um, and it doesn't matter which side of the food chain you're looking at. You can look at the bass and you can take their weights and give them a relative weight calculation. You can also calculate the bluegill's relative weight and get information that way. They affect each other. Mm-hmm. So if you know how to look at it, you can see it with just a few fish, you know, 10 bass, you know? And that's what I'm trying to teach people who can't afford my service because there's millions and millions of pond owners that can't. But it's not a hard concept to pick up. You can learn this stuff. So what are, you, what are you looking for in those 10 fish? Looking for their weights to be above average. We have a chart called a relative weight chart. And basically what it is, it just tells you, it gives you a frame of reference, right? Like what should, I don't know, 24-inch bass, what should that weigh on average? Do you mm-hmm. know? Do you know? Does anybody know? I know I don't. Yeah, I, can, I have no clue. Yeah, Bobby's uh, 24 is a pretty long fish. That's probably a seven or eight pound fish. That's, yep. That's 8.1 pounds. All right. And I just know it because they took averages of all the 24 inch fish in the United States. And they did it a long time ago before it was catch and release. Mm-hmm. So the distribution is right. The distribution is not right anymore. Ah. You see what I mean? Yeah. So I use the old data because it's better data. Hmm. Right. If I took an average weight of all the 12 inch bass in America right now, it'd be 0.8. Not 0.97. It's different now because of the way the fisheries are being managed. Hmm. So I use that old information to give me a frame of reference to say this is what average used to be. Now, we're talking average, right? right? I'm talking if you look at that chart and you go down it and it's you know it's got all those numbers at 8.1, 7.2, all the way back down. That's just average. That's just a C on your test, right? Just like your kid brings home straight C's. If they weigh that weight, it's mm-hmm. just straight C's. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of room for improvement over those numbers. Right. Right? Just because a fish is 24 inches and 8.1, okay, that doesn't mean it's going to be 8.1. It could be, I've seen 24-inch fish that weigh 11. You know, They can get way, way bigger. We have a frame of reference for the bottom. Mm-hmm. So if, we're, if we now that we understand that concept, right, if those fish are under that weight, that's a D. And if they're a half a pound under the weight, that's an F. They should be starving. They should be dead, right? So there's no room under that number. Our, as a manager, we want our fish to be over that number, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So the forage fish, it, the, you know, one time years ago we did a television show and Toxie was talking about that they were adding some thread fins, shad, and he said this is like soybeans to deer. Mm-hmm. So this forage fish, whether it's fathead minnows or thread fin shad or, or bluegill, whatever you're adding, you've got to have a – population that can sustain itself and continuously feed those bass that are in that pond. And that's how you make a bass grow to, uh, it, from my just fishing, it seems like it's pretty hard to get a fish over nine pounds. It, it seems like eight, they can get there. And I can, in my mind, I kind of think of an eight pound fish as a 170 inch deer. That's just me, my analogy. No booner. And, and then when you get a fish to, you know, ten pounds. I mean, he's that. That's a two hundred inch mm-hmm. white tail there. In that's, my in my mind, that's a great comparison, Bobby. That really is. Um, if you you know you got got a lot of hunters, so um, they're rare. You know, big bass are rare. You know, even in a perfect situation, they're rare. They have a lot of things they have to contend with to get that size. Mm-hmm. You know, fishermen included. But so when a guy calls you and he talks about, I've got, hey, I've got a pond and I want to catch big fish out of it, where where do you start focusing your efforts? If I could do it my way every time, I'd drain and restock. I clean slate. Yeah, start a clean slate. They grow fastest that way. Um, 
I learned it through the fish hatchery uh, that I work with uh, primarily. Uh, those guys are really, really good. Uh, Owen and Williams down in Hawkinsville. Um, we, I've worked with them exclusively for a long, long time. And Brian has taught, has, we've had conversations, you know, with what he's seeing and what I'm seeing. Um, so having like somebody that you can kick ideas back off of, you know what I mean? And talk at a level, a professional level. You know, I'm not talking to somebody who doesn't know. I'm talking to somebody who knows actually more than I do. These guys run a fish hatchery, mm-hmm. you know? So I pay attention to them. I pay very close attention to them. Uh, American Sport Fish is another fish hatchery I pay very close attention to. Mm-hmm. Um, those guys are, in my opinion, the best at growing genetically superior largemouth bass. I see freaks coming out of... Uh, American sport fish. I've grown some huge bass from there. Mm-hmm. Um, they do a great job. I like their, I like their fish hatchery very much as well. Um, but you know, that being said to grow a big bass, uh, we're stocking 35 fish per acre and the textbook will tell you 50. Okay. And it goes back to what Bobby was talking about earlier. I think the 50 on the textbook is there because they were accounting for harvest, mm-hmm. you know, because again, these studies are old. Um, we don't have harvest anymore. I mean, literally, I have no harvest anywhere to get anybody to keep a one pound bass is a miracle. Mm-hmm. You know, they put them all back and we're in a situation where there's too many one pound bass. Yeah. And people want to save them, take them someplace else. You can't. Where are you going to put them? There's too many everywhere. In the grease? Yeah, exactly. Please. <laughs> please keep some and, 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 and fry them up because, you know, it's, it's only helping the fishery. Sure. You know? It's only helping. It's hard to understand that carrying capacity, you know, because it really dictates so much stuff in <clears throat> wildlife and fisheries biology. But it makes complete sense when you think about it. You know, it's a mm-hmm. finite resource. Um, you know, I'm, but I imagine the, the, when you throw that to everybody, how many of the guys say, okay, drain my pond and start over versus how many say, never, fix it? Never. Yeah, always, you do always. <laughs> and I tell them, I'm going to tell you guys, I'll tell everybody on here, okay? If you do it that way, drain it and restock it, you're doing the best way for the fish to grow fastest, mm-hmm. you're doing it the cheapest way. Right. You want to do it the other way, you're doing the most expensive. And what I'll about time frame-wise? I mean, is Oh, it, it's way, way better. Way faster, way just, faster. to start with. Just start it over. Well, yeah. It, yeah. What amazes me is how fast they'll actually grow. Because, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think once you get everything right, that you, a bass can grow three pounds and t- three to four pounds in a year. Wow. Yeah. They can? Yeah. Is there a difference north versus south? For the south, they grow faster? Or I don't really have that much ground experience up right. north. You know right. what I mean? So I don't, I'm not to say I don't know. Right. But in the south, like I'm doing one right now. Um, we've got it stocked with bluegill. I'm picking up the bass in the morning and putting them in and putting it on the page, doing everything live so it yeah. can't be edited or anything. All right. So I can show people, you know, look, this is how I do it. Mm-hmm. And and this is, I'll just prove it. You know, next next year in 12 months, we'll see how big they are. I'm not going to tell fish stories. I'll just do it. Yeah. Like that. I'm not going to tell fish stories. Did you catch that, Bobby? Mm-hmm. I did. <laughs> yeah. I, I, but to answer your question, like our friend Todd, Todd Amonry. Yeah. I don't think his fish up there grow as fast in his pond. Yeah, I've always understood yeah. we had a you know a, a longer growing season, just like timber down there. Yeah, sure. so, oh, sure, yeah, it's yeah. going to work that way. Yeah, the, the fish are going to be a disadvantage for the length of time they have to grow. The growing season, there. per se. But let's talk about balance now, mm-hmm. okay? Because the length of the growing season doesn't matter if your fish are stunted like they are here. They're not growing. I don't care how long the growing season mm-hmm. is. So you can go up north and catch healthier bass, right? Right. 
than you can down south. They'll be bigger up north because they're in a balanced fishery. Is it like whitetails because of just the density of fish? Yeah, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's just too many. It, just too you many. know, just listening to y'all banner, uh, it, it just keeps reminding me how similar, uh, you know, pond and fisheries is to, to wildlife management. Yeah, we live. We, we're in the same class. It's um, fish and uh, wildlife biology. And being the the tree nerd in me, I'm also hearing so many similar things uh, about growing trees and fish. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it just there's it's all about the balance and the food. It really is. And, yeah. and they're you know the resources they have. What are your favorite forages? Bluegill, best, hands down. Um, you need to find a way to keep your bluegill population there. Um, things that'll take bluegill populations away, crappy. They will directly eat the bluegill. They will directly eat the bluegill's food. So there are we need to directly eat the crappie. Exactly, and that goes, <laughs> and that's a big part of. I have a, a lake, a nine-acre pond, actually in in Thomasville, Georgia, and my friend Mickey's. Uh, it's his. And uh, we've drained it once already, but the crap have gotten back into the stream. You know, mm-hmm. it happens. And we need to do it again. And it's another project that's going to be coming down the line here. It got bumped because of all the hurricanes this year. Every time we tried to go do it, it was a hurricane down there. Right. So we couldn't drain it. Um, so I just told Mick, I was like, just start keeping everything. Just start keeping everything you catch. Uh, it's a nine-acre pond. And it's in the middle of a, a 5,000 acres of cotton. Mm-hmm. You know, it's an agriculture thing. But um, – Let's manage, let's look at how, you know, taking fish from a pond affects the pond, and let's look how stocking it new affects the pond. So we're going to compare those two ponds, you know, over the next year. But he's pulled 1,600 one-pound crappie mm-hmm. out of that pond. I don't know how many bass, not that many, um, maybe 100. Um, we caught some. We caught three 26-inch bass on one trip. 26-inch um, fish should be 10, should be mm-hmm. over 10. They were seven. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's pretty common with crappy. They affect everything negatively in the system. Um, people get confused because they think Mother Nature, you know, and we're not t- dealing with Mother Nature, right? Scientists develop these stocking strategies, you know, and they figured out don't put crappy in there. Mm-hmm. You know, now if you want crappy, go go to a big lake. Go to a thousand acre lake. There'll be good crappy in there. It's different there. You got a small pond, you don't want them. I was going to ask that you brought up size, you know, um, as far as size of a pond, when would a lake be large enough to support uh, multiple targeted species? Um, I like bass only as predators till about 50 acres. Gotcha. And then I've still seen crappy cause some problems in 50, 60 acres water, but mm-hmm. not like they do on smaller stuff. Mm-hmm. And then once you get to about a hundred acres, everything's pretty cool. You know, gotcha. it's like, you know, they're not really a problem. <clears throat> gotcha. So I've always heard, I've, I, I call them crappie. Now you call them crappy. I call them crappie. Sakale. Yeah. But <laughs> Speckled perch. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong now, because this is just my, what I've perch. always thought. But the crappie spawn first, and then those crappie fry, they eat the bass fry later on. They so, do. You're, so that just, it just negates the bass they're being getting able to get a toehold. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you nailed it. Um, if you think about it. Any fisherman knows the crappie are spawning early in the spring, Mm -hmm. you know, and everybody knows how fish spawn. They spawn a billion to get, you know, four survivors, Mm -hmm. you know. So early spring, you got crappie spawn. And then six weeks later, you get bass spawn. Well, guess what? All those little crappie 
are big enough to eat your bass fry. Mm-hmm. So on years where it stacks upright, you just lose entire annual year classes of bass to crappy populations. So what about fathead minnows, uh, I- anything like that? What, how do you feel about those as a forage base? I like them. Um, I could have used them this year, but I didn't just because I'm proving a point. Um, I'll use them just like this situation tomorrow where I'm stocking two inches. Um, I want them to transition to fatheads, then transition to the bluegill. So they'll go from, you know, once they get to four inches or so, they'll be hitting fatheads. The fatheads are super easy for them to catch, so they just get wiped out. Um and then my F1s are off and running to the bluegill forage. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fatheads will be, I'll be done with the fatheads of that much. And I don't really use fatheads past that. I've never really seen like personally stocking fatheads be anything great. You know, if I'm stocking fish, I'm stocking bluegill or shad. Yeah. And your shot, that thread fin shad is my, thread fin is usually what you'll have to buy from the fish hatchery. Yes. But it, I can't get my hands on some gizzard shad too. Can those thread fin reproduce in a pond? Oh, yeah. That's the nice thing about the thread fins is they're multiple. They're like bluegill. They'll get a couple spawns a year out of them, not just one, like yeah. a gizzard shad. The thread fins are smaller. So. They they go well in a pond. They work well in a pond. Um, I've grown some great bass on threadfin bluegill ponds. Um, I like the way it changes the dynamics of the fishery. Like you'll have the the pond will fish a certain way when you have bluegill only, and then when you add that other species of fish, you have to remember. You know, when you add that other species, you're taking away from the bluegill. Like you remove, they're feeding on zooplankton. That's what zo, that's fifty percent of the bluegill's diet. Mm-hmm. So by adding threadfin, you're removing bluegill. Right? You can't just do. You're not Going more, you right. know what I mean? Not laying yet. You need perfect mm-hmm. pond plus if you want more fish per acre, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what that does. Right. That brings your carrying capacity up. Stocking thread fins taken away. Mm-hmm. So Well, let's start, let's start right there. What you're saying is a fertilized pond, whether you use our product or not, a fertilized pond helps kickstart that the the zooplankton, the phytoplankton, right? That is the basis of the food chain for all the fish in that pond, right? I and, call it beneficial algae, mm-hmm. right? That's the plankton, and by becoming a plankton farmer is basically what we're doing. We've got plankton occurring naturally, you know, in all water. Um, so we add the fertilizer to boost the plankton, and since it's a beneficial, that's the base of the food source. You know, that's the food. That's where all the food in the pond comes from. Mm-hmm. Everything comes off of that. The bedrock. Mm-hmm. So literally, like, we know the numbers. Like, in Georgia, you know, we support about 100 pounds of fish per acre naturally. Fertilized pond supports 400 pounds of fish per acre. Wow. So four-time multiplier. Four-time multiplier. That's pretty serious. Big difference. That's a Big, huge, huge difference. difference. And then once you start, you, you need to keep it up. It's not something you do just once. No, you, you monitor that bloom because what you're looking at is a green color to the water. Maybe sometimes it shifts to brown. That's a zooplankton. You know, sometimes it shifts between green and brown. You're just seeing it shift between predominantly phyto to predominantly zoo, and that happens. It's natural. Mm-hmm. You'll see surface films. You'll see a little, you know, stuff get blown up in the corner. That's slough off. It almost looks like oil sometimes. That's dead plankton that floats, and you'll see all that stuff get a little bit worse um, aesthetically. Like sometimes people don't like a green pond. You know, because they don't fully understand what that green is. Yeah, green is good. That green is great, man. That's just money. Mm-hmm. You know, you get that that super clear water is just an indicator of low productivity. Now, low productivity doesn't mean you can't have good fishing if the balance is correct. Mm-hmm. You know, 
but you're going to have fewer fish per acre. Makes sense. Yeah. The, so the the you know we typically tell people to start fertilizing their ponds when the water temperature gets in the mid 60s, mm-hmm. and that's usually around March here. Yeah. And then um, and then about every six weeks you just kind of check it. And if your pond drains off the top, which a lot do, now that can suck the bloom off. So you might, in that scenario, if you have a lot of rain, you might have to fertilize every four to six weeks. But if your pond, a lot of times these new guys like like Shan are designing ponds that can drain off the bottom or the middle layer of the pond so it isn't taking that productive water off the top. And so that pond might not have to be fertilized as frequently as one that sucks off the top. Right. Uh, some ponds have so much flow you can't fertilize them, you know, so we'll go to a feeding program then, mm-hmm. you know, and add an automatic feeder and just feed the bluegill directly. You know, you, it, that works, but you need an expensive feeder or you need to feed. You got to make sure you're feeding consistently. Mm-hmm. Feed every day. You know, you can't go feed for a couple months and quit. Right. That doesn't work. You're just going to kill fish. You know, got to be consistent. Yeah, and so, Dudley, I know you want to comment, but I want to just point one thing out. You mentioned something a minute ago about F1s, and mm. would you, for our listeners, make sure you explain what that is? Sure. There's a lot of misinformation going around. I've seen it on Instagram a lot, a bunch of conversations about genetics. Um, you know, you got your Florida bass and your northern bass, right? And let's see. Um, that's actually pretty interesting, the, the discrepancy between Floridas and northerns. Like if you if that's a fish tank at that that table, you know you've got a big tank with fish in it, right? And it's full of northerns, right? Those northerns will be up at the edge, like as close to you as they can get to you, and they'll be like looking at you, like come down here and watch what happens. I'm gonna kill you. <laughs> He's a predator. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you do the same thing with a tank of Floridas, and they'll be like you have a force field around you. They'll be backing away, huh? They won't be aggressive at all. And I've seen guys who spend the money on the Floridas, you know, and they go, I'm putting pure Florida bass in my pond. Okay. Doesn't fish in it. It's not good. They think they grow bigger is the thought. And that's not how it works. But they're less aggressive. They're right. much less aggressive. So let's use science, right? Yeah. Because right? that's what those guys did. That's what Barry and those guys were doing down American sport fish, right? Yeah. They took a northern bass with that bad attitude, and they took the Florida bass with the uh, huge growth, and they mixed them. Mm-hmm. Okay? And that's where you get the term F1 hybrid. And if we remember our Punnett square from genetics, F1 just means you know, first generation. Right. Right? Well, that clears up because I always thought it was first generation Florida hybrid. I never knew that they had crossbred them with yeah, so uh, with northern species to get the aggression back in them. Yeah, that's cool. That's right. You get the the, the aggression, yeah. and then you get the growth. Right. So the F1s grow like ridiculous, right? Like way better than Florida's, way better than Northern's. Mm-hmm. When you get to— Because it's a hybrid, Dudley. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but then they have babies, right? Those are F2s. Those go back to northern, northern growth. Hmm. That's why I keep telling people, drain and restock your pond, Right. In right. eight, ten years from now, your F1s are gone. I want them again and again and again and again. I'm going to keep growing F1s because they grow the best, right? And it's an eight to ten-year cycle. Yeah, that's about how long I'm going to get a bass to grow, you know, because mm-hmm. I got them five years. You know, say I get them to th- say I get them to two and three-quarter, three pounds in a year. That's pretty normal on 35 per acre. Two years to half six, right? Now I got something that has a chance to really do something. Right. Right. If I've got a bass that's two pounds and two years old, and it could be six, it's missed its genetic opportunity. Right, that expression we always talk about. 
It, it's not growing at a rate that it could grow. That it could grow at. And it's behind. And no amount of money you can throw in there is going to fix that. No, Nothing's going to fix that. It's behind. And it's staying behind. It won't express this potential. Right. What's the like, biggest fish you've grown? It's 15. Yeah. There's been some 15-pound-plus fish grown within 20 miles of here that nobody will talk about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's hard to do, man. There's a lot of luck involved. You know, you got to get, you got to get everything right. Um, and sometimes you can't. You know, sometimes Mother Nature takes that from you. Oh yeah, you know, yeah. Um, it's still wildlife. It just, yeah. it it makes the world record from so long ago seem just less and less real. It really to does. me, mm-hmm. uh, with with all the management going on, uh, to think that some guy went out and was that 1932 or. I think it was uh, it was around then. Uh, the, uh, the guy's name was George Perry, twenty two pounds four ounces, in a it's called Lake Montgomery in Georgia. Mm-hmm. It was an oxbow lake, one of our only natural ones, mm. where the river changes course and, yeah. and creates a lake. Caught it in an oxbow, so you got to figure. I would imagine. I mean, I'm. He might I have been the only one in there. Yeah, like, <laughs> probably <laughs> was. Big old fish. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> probably just in there crushing everything he could eat yeah. and grew to that size, you know. Wow. And uh, that's it. They caught a twenty-two pounder in Japan too, not long ago. Hmm. Uh, like that, Iowa. That know. was one of the trivia questions I was going to ask Lanny if he knew of other of continents that had largemouth bass on them. Japan. Well, then you, oh, you got, got that one. <laughs> and there's, one, the day. There, there's, the day. there's one more. There's one What's more up? that it would really surprise you. You're, I got the first that, one right, that, 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 you can jump I'm, I'm just going to guess uh, Australia. They may have them there. I'm not aware, but they have them in Africa. Okay. They have taken fish and stocked them in South Africa. I've actually been talking to a guy in Brazil who's got some. Is that mm-hmm. right? On Instagram. South America. Cuba. The new frontier. Cuba. Yeah. 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 They grow some big fish in Cuba, too. So that's interesting that you're, you know, talk back to the F1s and, uh, you know, draining the lake and starting over. If you're, if, if you're going to be overkill about it, that's the way to do it. Mm-hmm. So that even tells me if you're going to be overkill about growing these trophy bass, it'd be better. You'd be better off to have a couple of ponds. That way, you can always have that cycle going. So oh, when yeah. you when you're having to start over, you don't have to wait for that. Yeah, exactly. That prime time. Exactly. Yep. It's uh, if you've got two now, I've had to, I have had a few guys that had like a big lake that wasn't like couldn't drain it, you know, for whatever reason, and they had an upper pond. So we would grow, like we'd drain the upper pond and then just grow bluegill in that two acres or whatever upper pond to drain off in the fall. <laughs> I like that style. Yeah. Dude, you want to nursery. start eating some bass? Yeah, yeah. That, that puts Everybody needs a bait tank. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you go, you go get $800 worth of thread fins and you stock $40,000 worth of them at the end of the summer, you know? Mm-hmm. Wow. I got a quick question. Can I jump back in? There? Yeah, I can jump in. Um, concerning the the fertilization, I, I get that. Obviously, through our conversation today, it's, it's a it's a limited resource. There's a carrying capacity there, um, where the different species you put in there has a major effect on on how well they can grow. But um, help me understand. You, you mentioned earlier water chemistry mm-hmm. uh, and how that plays into the. Uh, not only the the fertilization regimen, but also uh, the carrying capacity of the lake. Okay. And and I, I guess I'm so intrigued by this because of we talk about pho p 
pH all the time. And I didn't know we, in, as far as whitetails are concerned, we use that as, is always talking about how much nutrients that the plants can get out of the soil and therefore give them to the, so I don't know if there's, if there even is anything there, but no, I know. you're, you're hitting on something very important. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, so I can just tell you like my field experience, right? So I'm in Georgia and I'm doing jobs for people and I'm spraying the water and I'm a kid, you know, like 23, you know, um, mm-hmm. and I'm just working. Right. And it's, you read the label, you know, you've talked to the doctors and you've been to the classes, but now you're out in the world working, you know, and it says put a gallon of algicide per acre. I'm like, okay. But I didn't, I just wanted to see what happens if I put a half. Well, it worked. Some places I put a quart, it works. Like, that's weird. I don't need a gallon. I need a quart. And I started seeing the correlation between hardness and alkalinity and the amount of product you had to use. So if you have limestone in your watershed, which we do not in Georgia, mm-hmm. right? We got like, eight, seriously, like eight parts per million hardness, mm-hmm. right? It's nothing there, right? You can put all the fertilizer you want in that lake. It won't kick the bloom off. Just like trying to fertilize poor soil, right? You got to get the soil in the bottom of the pond right mm-hmm. to get the fertilizer to work. So once I get my hardness and alkalinity up with lime, then my fertilization program will work. So you use a, like a lime barge and you're spraying lime into the lake? Actually, yeah, I do that. And I do another thing too. Um, again, just from experience, like you can use hydrated lime. Like, all right. Ag lime goes to the bottom of the pond, changes the soil chemistry in the bottom of the pond, which changes the water chemistry. Hydrated lime changes the water chemistry, and then it flows out with the rain like you were talking about, mm-hmm. right? So on my first couple of seasons, sometimes I'll use hydrated lime because I, I want to see, like, this particular pond I'm doing right now, I did it on purpose because I got cows in the watershed. I don't know how much nutrients I've got leaching in. Mm-hmm. And I've had that problem where you add fertilizer, and then you're getting more from upstream and you realized, and you've got a huge problem with your phytoplankton bloom. And that means it gets too dense. It's, it's very green. You can't see less than a foot into the water. It's too much plankton. Light can't get through. Anymore. So that's just kind of giving you, uh, that's telling you how it's going to react in right. the future. So what, why I'm doing that is because after the next rain comes through and washes my hydrated lime out, it'll squash my plankton bloom back down if I need it to. Ah, I can get rid of it. If I do high ag lime and get the water chemistry right, I can't get rid of that. I have to let, I have to let, I have no control of that bloom at that point. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to let that phosphorus cycle through the system. Um, whereas with the hydrated lime, I can control it. I have a little bit more control. That makes sense to me. So most people, Lanny, when you hear them build a pond, they take that opportunity to lime the bottom of the pond. And I mean, really pour the lime to it. But so, but, Places like American Sport Fish Hatchery, they have people that will they have a lime Go barge. Go lime your your lake like you do your food plot. Yes, so mm-hmm. they'll let, set this barge, small barge in your pond, and then they'll they'll take a front end loader and load lime, and then motor around the pond and let and kick that lime off. So, is there a, a quick and easy pine test like we do soil test for food plots? Yeah, you just dip. You literally like. Like a like you do a pool, yeah, just a pool test strip. Dip it in there and look. It'll get you close, but mm-hmm. like when it's so low, like in Georgia, like eight, eight, ten, twelve. Like if it's not twenty parts per million hardness, fertilizer doesn't work. You got to get it over twenty. Mm-hmm. Um, but once you're there, you're good. Now going back to what we were talking about, say spraying with algicides, You know, as I kept going on and I get a little older, well, now I'm up in North Carolina working. 
and I go out there and I put a half gallon aldehyde out, it doesn't do anything. That's Where what I court work back home. Yeah. But you look at the hardest alkalinity, you're looking at like 150 parts per million. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a buffering capacity there that you're dealing with. You're the the aldehydes bind into the getting bound out. You know, it's not it's getting it's it's hitting the, the the limestone. It's being neutralized by the water. It's not killing the plant. All right. So you have to as a higher your hardness and alkalinity levels get, the more product you're going to need to combat that problem. Right. That that buffering. There's a lot. Soul man. Yeah. Uh, Like, for example, at the nursery, we get over 100 parts per million. We start getting a little nervous because all the calcium and magnesium builds up in the soil. And it's like having a pH that's too high. Really? Same thing. Interesting. I didn't know that. And uh, so we have to put something acidic in the water to to bring that alkalinity down. Take it back down. Interesting. Interesting. So what's the difference between hardness and pH? Okay, um, <laughs> hardness is a measure of the calcium in the water. Mm-hmm. pH is a measure of the acidity of the water. Okay, so if you have lime, you'll have high hardness. No lime, no hardness, no right? No hardness. Okay. okay, pH is different, all right? pH changes all the time, every day. And it's a, on a diurnal fluctuation, is what they call that. So what happens is plankton takes up carbon dioxide to produce oxygen. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And it does it all day long, right? Carbon dioxide is acidic, so it drops the pH, right? Or no, it raises the pH to uh, alkaline. And then at night, the whole process goes to respiration. Everything in the uh, the plankton, the fish, everything's using oxygen at night. Mm -hmm. So that has the carbon dioxide builds back up, swings the pH the other way. Huh. So it changes with the chemistry of the water by oxygen production. The pH changes all the time. The pH doesn't, I don't really test pH too much. It it's doesn't get hardness. Yeah. Yeah. Hardest alkalinity, oxygen is pretty much all I need to know. Gotcha. So that cycle you, that cycle you just mentioned, in the heat of the summer, when we have cloudy days, mm-hmm. that's when you have problems with potentially a pond, uh, uh, even turning over if you have sure. a cold rain or something that happens. And that, that, am I right? Is You're that right? When it, yep. When and it's going to happen? It, one thing you have, one little piece of, like of trivia you need is the warmer water gets, the less oxygen it holds. Mm. Okay, it's just a physics thing. You can test it in the winter; it'll be thirteen parts. You test it in the summer; it'll be six. It's nothing but temperature. Hmm. So, when you've got your phytoplankton bloom kicked up with your fertilizer, and you got all your fish four times as many fish, three times as many fish in the pond as normal, and it's heat, that starts getting dangerous because at night all the oxygen can get used up in the pond, and it can kill your fish. That's what turnover is. That's that's what having too much plankton in the water will do. Mm -hmm. Okay. A turnover is a little different. A turnover is like a cake. Think about a cake. So you've got a a layered cake with Mm -hmm. like a vanilla layer and a chocolate layer. Um, The upper vanilla layer has the oxygen. The lower chocolate layer does not. Mm -hmm. Okay. If the upper, if the pond is really deep, so this say this is like six feet of oxygen and this is a, 15 feet of no oxygen in the water and they, and this water cools off because the only thing that keeps them 
separate is temperature. So if you get a cool day, it flops it, it drops the oxygen, and kills everything. That's what turnover is. That's what turnover gotcha. is. Gotcha. Never have understood that. Thank it, you for enlightening me. Because no I hear Bobby talk about it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> like, and, oh. and, and I don't know if I've ever heard anybody put it in more layman's terms than that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you, you're an expert at that. Nailed it. Uh, and if, <laughs> if you're having trouble understanding this, that's even more of a reason to hire a professional to manage your lake. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And these afternoon thunder showers that happen that can be cold rain is what yep. is, it's a real danger to me, forcing this to happen. Yep. So what I do is I back off my phytoplankton bloom in the heat, heat of the summer. Don't, I won't keep it 18 to maybe I'll go to 24, you know, I'll let it, let it fall out a little bit. You know, I won't hit it with a full dose of fertilizer in the heat. And then when the, when the temperatures start dropping back off, then I'll pop it again for the fall. Um, just being aware, kind of, you know, having that experience, you know, having that feel for it keeps you out of danger. So if a guy has electricity around the pond, could they not, those air stratifiers, does that help the problem? It depends on the size of the pond, really, based on my experience. And you don't mess up with your fertilization, you know, get help with that. If you have, you know, call any of us or, you know, get help. Because I have seen people with phosphorus loading problems, even maybe not from fertilizer, well, from nutrients, say from animals coming in, mm -hmm. uh, agriculture, not even those aerators will save your fish if the plankton gets too far out of whack. Yeah. Yeah. And would you use an algicide then? You, you can't. Because too much of it. Well, you'll just kill it and it comes right back. <clears throat> right. You know, you got to you got to kill it at the source of the phosphorus. And you can't get the phosphorus out. So you kind of run into a situation. I've seen it. Um, I had a doctor once, surgeon. He called me out and he goes, my fish die every August. And this guy's got, he's got plenty of money. He's got every aerator in the world out there. It's a three-acre pond. It yeah. just, he built, his pond was built. It was 100 years of chicken farming. Oh. So all that is coming in, and it there was absolutely nothing you could do. Mm -hmm. Just nothing. It just killed them. That's a shame. Yeah. yeah. So, look, I've— I've got a, I've got several questions, but I want to make sure you guys ask. What well, I've been firing away over here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so. you got something? <laughs> well, I, no, I mean, I'm looking at some of my questions, and I'm having trouble picking picking a good one out. I, I know um, we're talking about bass and all that good stuff, but uh, are there are there any other species out there that you manage for uh, specifically? Like, uh, I've heard of people. Putting like only smallmouth in a pond, or do you do you get in into any of that? Not too much. Um, nothing exotic like that yet. Too much, really. Especially where I live, I don't think we can get smallmouth to live there. Mm -hmm. um, now, I have done a few interesting projects, though. Um, one thing I do with my trophy bass management is in about I don't know where I live. Where I live and where you guys live is real similar, you know. So it probably work here yeah, pretty too. well too. Yeah. Um, about Thanksgiving, you stock rainbows, rainbow trout, and you can fish for them all winter. Leave your feeders going, you know, have a good time. Kids can catch them, you know, whatever, eat them. Um, in the spring, though, this is the interesting part. You know, they grow pretty good over the winter. You can get them pretty big. Um, they'll die. Again, uh, when the water temperature gets above 68 degrees, trout die. Mm -hmm. You have to have the cold water. And when the, when it, they're just dead when it gets higher than that. Um but they just don't die like flipping a light switch and you know, they start getting lethargic. And about the time they start getting lethargic 
It's about the time my females are coming off bed. Mm-hmm. Grub time. And I, they crush them. <laughs> no, I bet that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty innovative management right yeah. there now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's you get some good, good trout fishing and you get some benefit good to Good bass food. Yeah, yeah, good bass food. Um, and then also, you're talking about draining a lake, you know, to start over or whatnot. What, what if the pond owner doesn't have the ability to drain their lake? Do, do you recommend any kind of chemicals? Or? Oh, sure. Well, we can... We can um, like I've done this a few times. We had a gizzard shad problem. We couldn't drain it. Um, so I called a friend of mine, Derek Stockbridge. He's been consulting Atlanta forever. And he told me about an old school trick. Um, he goes, oh, they'll die. Uh, just use rotenone and use it at a real low dose. And they'll make sure you get it right. But you won't kill any fish but the gizzard shad with it. And it worked. <laughs> just mm. did a low dose of it. And a rotenone is a, a, we use it to kill the fish. It's a plant. It's a, a, a ground up root. I believe it's called a deerus plant from South America. But that, I don't know, I be wrong about that. Anyway, um, rotenone goes into the gills, goes into the bloodstream, binds to the red blood cells, and keeps it from holding oxygen. So you literally suffocate the fish with it. It's mm-hmm. deadly, deadly stuff. Um, that's how you get all the fish out. You know, when you drain and restock your pond, you don't want any bass in there. If you have one bass in there, you you're you got to do it again. Gotcha. It won't work because it'll throw it'll start eating all your balance up wrong. You know, you got to get it done just right and keep yeah getting all the fish out is critical. Um, that's what we use that rope known for um, to kill all the fish. But like I said, I just used it a little different and got rid of one species of it. Interesting. Yeah. And then over a little bit of time, that rotenone dissipates or dissolves. and It, it does. It, yeah. So we're out, the question that I wanted to ask, <clears throat> so a guy could have a trophy bluegill fishery, and you could manage specifically for that. Um, um, oh, sure. I've done it yeah. lots of times. And then what, so if a guy's got, a, a who's trying to start a trophy bass fishery, and it seems like you can get to seven and eight pounds pretty easy. Mm-hmm. But how, what's the next step to get those fish into double digits? Is there is there a trick to that? Or is there something that you do that you've learned that you can share? Yeah, gizzard shad. They taught us in school that they'll ruin the pond. Um, they'll take it over. You know, they'll dominate it with. Again, you only have so many fish in the pond. So if you've got, if you can support a thousand pounds of fish and you got nine hundred pounds of shad. You only got 100 pounds of the other fish. Right. Right. Um, so I went out again, went out of the world, got a shock boat, started doing assessments for people. And I noticed something pretty quickly. Like the fish that I like to catch, the really big ones, there was a unique thing about every single one of those lakes. They all had gizzard jet. Mm. <clears throat> like all of them. And I'm talking fish, nine plus fish, you know. Right. Yeah. Not, eights, eights are pretty easy to grow. You know, like you said, I'll get them to eight pretty quick. Getting them past ten is is different. Um, that that determines how good you are. Gotta have that food source. So gizzard. the gizzard shad is that? Uh, w- would that be in addition to thread fin, or so you would have I've, both? I've done I've done all. I've done um, bluegill and gizzard shad, and I've done bluegill thread fin and gizzard shad. And I don't know that it matters. Um, I do know that when you stock gizzard shad, they crush the bluegill. They, because they're pulling their, their, they have a gizzard like a chicken and they filter the bottom, mm-hmm. right? They tip like that down with their head down and they filter stuff across their gill rakers all the time, scraping rocks and taking all that food away from them. So you'll see the bluegill population drop when you 
stock <clears throat> gizzard shad. And then your gizzard shad go to eight inches in one year. So you basically are only managing, when you put gizzard shad in like you're only managing for big bass. You know, you're going to, you're not going to have good bluegill fishing and you're not going to have good intermediate bass fishing. Right. So if you want those two things, don't put gizzard shad in there. Right. Right. This is strictly for trophy bass management. And that's all you want to catch is trophy bass. Don't put gizzard shad in anything else. And if the thought is they grow so large, only a large fish can eat them. That is it. Yeah. Um, what about crawfish? Do you ever stunt crawfish in a pond? Sure. Yeah. That goes back to kind of like the, um, to trout. You know, you can use supplemental. I'm not using the crawfish to, to to put weight on my bass per se. I'm using the crawfish to get them feeding on something different, you know. So if I stock a pond with bluegill only and fish it, like I said, it'll fish a certain way. You add shad, it'll fish a different way because you've got completely different species of forage out there. It makes mm-hmm. the bass relate to them completely differently, right? You go in there and start adding crawfish a couple times a season. Yeah. Makes them hit a red crankbait. Your red crankbaits get a lot better after that. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I never thought about managing for fishability that way either. You know, I just kind of figured if they was in there, they would eat what you chunked at them, but that makes a lot of sense. And sometimes when those fish get larger, when we're talking seven, eight, nine, they get really tough to catch. Mm -hmm. It's like maybe they've seen it all or they're smarter. I I don't know. Do you have any insight on that? Yeah, a little bit. Um, Especially on your smaller ponds, be careful with how many days you fish in a row. It's called lure resistance, yeah. right? And let's put, I put it a simple way. Um, if I can train a fish to feed, I can train a fish not to feed. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. And if you ca- keep catching them every single day, especially small, small lakes, like under five acres, you know, small ponds, I try to tell people, you know, make it like a weekend thing. Make it like a couple days a week thing. Don't, don't make it a seven-day-a-week all-summer thing on that two-acre pond because I'll put my shock boat in and I'll look, look, here's your fish. Yeah, but we can't catch any of them. Yeah, so pressure seen, managing that pressure. Again. They've seen yeah. every lure at tackle at the Bass Pro Shop. Yeah, yeah, you know, right. yeah. you, know, you got to calm down, man. Just don't fish in there a month and go back and see if you can catch you know, a fish. If you took a bite out of a quarter pounder and it rocketed you into space, you, you'd probably be <laughs> hesitant to eat a quarter pounder again. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, do you have a formula that you give guys that you say how many days a month they ought to fish? Not really. I just tell them to be easy on it. You know, when it's a smaller lake. Now, once you get up into your bigger, like, I don't know, 20, it, you got to do a lot of fishing to start putting lure resistance on 20 acres of water. But I've seen it happen. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, some people think that, so the fish that you're actually catching, and if you're managing that fish, you, so if he's in a slot that you're going to keep to, to take mouths out of the lake, mm-hmm. that a lot of times that that's the easiest fish to catch. And so as you go around and you're taking fish out, you're taking those fish that are the easiest ones to catch, and you're leaving the more difficult fish to catch. Oh, yep. And over time, you <clears throat> make it hard to catch them. Yeah. Right, so what I'll do there, and that's a great point, I'll harvest with my shocking boat. Ah, uh, roll them up. Um, <laughs> off subject, but uh, while you're out in your shocking boat, what what are some – have you ever shocked up any uh, – I'm obsessed with hybrid things. Have you ever shocked up any like naturally occurring hybrid fish? Yeah. Yeah. You see them. A lot of sunfish will be naturally occurring hybrids. Um, and I'm terrible with that, man. I don't have I get people from, you know, up north saying, what, what's this hybridized with? I don't even know what all the hot sunfish are up there. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, you know, along that same line, we were talking about all the different names that 
Southerners and, and probably more in other regions have come up with for fish like goggle eyes, goggle eyes, yeah, warm mouth, yeah. that's right, chinkapin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I grew up calling a shell or a red ear sunfish a chinkapin. Yeah. And then I had a buddy moved down the street from the Carolinas, and he was always calling them shell crackers. And, yeah, you know, I was a shell cracker. Them. I think shell crackers are a more accurate description. They have like molar teeth in the back, and if you watch them feed, they'll they take freshwater snails and they crack them and they take the snail out and they, you know, spit the shell. Yeah. You ever see the shells cracked open all over the lake? That's yeah. what's doing it. It's the shell crackers. <laughs> um, they're great for, I, I actually stock those as well in every lake because they do feed on that part of the food chain, which the bluegill don't. And they pop early in the spring for a good forage pop. They only spawn once, but you get them early like the crappy. Mm-hmm. So shell cracker are really good for your lake. Um, but that reason and those snails are a host to most of the parasites your fish get. So by reducing the snails with the shell cracker, you reduce all the red sores. Huh. Oh, cleaning them up out there. Oh, shell cracker. That's interesting. It's so cool how every little thing plays its role. You know what I mean? In biodiversity. Not going to get teared up here, will you? Well, and it, there, it's, deadly, you know, the, the more <laughs> I talk to you, the more it seems like you're you're into keeping it simple. You know, like with the blue gr- the bluegill. Yep. Um, and then, you know, adding the shell cracker, that's kind of like a, a natural helper. Yep. Um, but when you get into adding all the shad and whatnot, uh, you it becomes more, a site specific thing. You know, right. like say you had a lake that looked like a river, right? Twenty acres, you want trophy bass, and it winds. All right, we'll put gizzard shad in there. Same size body of water, but it's a cereal bowl with a huge amount of open water out in the middle. We're going thread fins in there. We don't want gizzard shab being to go out in the middle and stay away from our fish like that. And that's exactly what they'll do. And you'll end up with too many gizzard shad out there in the middle of the pond. So I'll put the gizzard shad in the riverine type places okay. that they, where they can't hide. Hmm. Another reason to hire a professional. Yeah, man. You know, you can, you can read a... a yeah, body of water. I didn't learn that at school, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. And that that's kind of interesting. We we like to merge the science with the hands-on yeah, experience. The application. That's what and I think a lot of our <clears throat> listeners do as well. And so it's it's really refreshing to hear hear stuff from you uh, following that similar format. So Lanny's a, a big cat fisherman. They love to go on the river and run trout lines and limb lines and all that. Do any of your customers ever insist and want to add catfish to their? Yeah, I can't believe you took my question. Channel cats, man. (laughs) Well, I grew up. I mean, growing up, nobody had bass ponds. Everybody had catfish ponds because they were eating out of them. Yeah, you know, and and so I think my infatuation with catfish started earlier. But I was going to ask that question. Do you have people that want to, you know, specifically? Oh, they're fun. Yeah, Um, I've had a few. Um, them and hybrid stripers are a ball. Oh yeah. Yeah. But it, similar things happen with the cats, the channel cats and the hybrids. Um, you kind of have to have the pond just for them. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. I, I, we never, I mean, all the only thing that was in those ponds was, were channel cats. Well, and, and no you, flatheads or blue cats. It was all channel cats. Yeah. That's interesting. I don't have any like very limited experience of flatheads in ponds and it's not good. Don't put them in there. Yeah. I've heard they have <laughs> to have, uh, obviously they're a very dominant predator. And then, from what I understood, they have to have flowing water. Yeah, and they don't do. They usually eat all the fish in the pond. Mm-hmm. Um, it's too much predator, not right. enough fish. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the channel cats do great on feet. You know, so you put your feeter out there, let it go every day, and you'll have seven pound channel catfish 
15 months. You know, Man, we got to build a catfish pond out back, Bobby. And once you got <laughs> a, you know, a half acre or two acres or whatever it is with seven pound catfish in it, you're not going to have other fish overrun that pond. They, know, they win. They will eat. You know, everybody <laughs> here has caught a catfish on a, on a spinnerbait. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? That's right. They'll eat. Yeah. And when you got them all big like that, yeah, they're going to eat your bluegill. They're going to eat your bass. They're going to kind of take it. Um, and the hybrids will do the same thing. Hmm. But you can have some nice eight-pound hybrids in an acre or two of water. I've seen kids, like 10 kids, go down to a dock, catch fish on every cast till they're tired of catching them for 20 minutes. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah. And then we're going back to riding four-wheelers, mm-hmm. you know, just wearing hybrids out. That's fun stuff. Yeah. Mm, I'd like to do that. Yeah. And then you got, you know, dinner. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll tell you one thing about that that uh, flat here. That is a good eating fish for sure. Absolutely. It's one of my favorite. Yeah. Everybody around here knows that Bobby learned how to uh, whisper in an ammo factory. So how important, I ask this for Bobby's concern and my child, how important is being quiet when you fish? Oh, that's a good question. Um, your voice doesn't matter. They can't hear it. Tapping the boat matters a lot. Gotcha. <laughs> you got lateral line and you got ears, mm-hmm. you know. Um, they have ears. They have ears. <laughs> I'm just learning all kinds of stuff today. <laughs> <laughs> they're not on the outside of their head. They're on the inside. Huh. Um, it looks, That's why I've never seen them. <laughs> it looks like a little piece of a broken tooth. It's a little bone. And it sits on hairs inside its head like that. Like the mm-hmm. bone is there and the hairs do that. And when the sound waves go through... It rattles that bone. They can hear. Now, you ever been underwater? A lot. You ever heard stuff underwater? A lot. You can't tell what direction it's mm-hmm. coming from. No. You can no. hear it really well yeah. because it travels so much faster underwater. It's got to turn around. But little. you have no idea what direction it's coming mm-hmm. from. Fish are in the same situation. That's where we enter our lateral line system. And that's an interesting thing. We don't have that. But the best way to describe it would be when you're at the beach, maybe like you down, go down to the coast, and the kid drives by with a loud radio in his truck. And you can feel the music. Mm-hmm. Okay, bass can feel things swimming around them like that. The lateral line is like a, a cup with a hair. Imagine a coffee cup with a hair in the middle. And when vibrations come through the water, it wiggles that hair. It's so sensitive, you can remove their ears and their eyes. They can still eat. Well, I noticed your video wow, on your YouTube that's page. That's pretty impressive. You had a, a blind bass, you know, still feeding. Yeah, uh, and that's one that doesn't matter. They can, they can literally feel the stuff around them so accurately. Um, I saw a test one time. A guy had a bluegill, and he uh, had a blind bluegill, and he put it in the thing, and he tried to poke it with a stick. Now, it couldn't see, but it had its lateral line. And it was bobbing and tweeting. Man, it's all the <laughs> over there. Couldn't hit that thing. Those hairs weren't moving. <laughs> so that's how lateral line works. And So you can talk, just don't bang around in the boat. Anything you hit on that boat is letting everything in the yeah. lake know where you are. That vibration. And, and that vibration. And, yeah, that, that's bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but your, 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 your voice and your talking isn't moving, isn't going into the water, you know, and, and displacing the water enough to, to hurt. So you can talk all you want. But I told Joe wouldn't talk too much, Bob. Mm-hmm. He always tells me to be quiet. Yeah. He talks way too much. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dudley, you got to know him? Well, I have some. I have a few trivia questions. Well, did we want to run those or yeah, not? Well, you could try. He looks like he might be game. <laughs> Mayonnaise or so I've uh, <laughs> just kind of hound dogged you a little bit on social media, and 
we came up with a few questions for you. Okay. And uh, we, we try to do some trivia for all of our guests. All right. Uh, hopefully you get them right. Maybe. Uh, if you don't, it, it may be a problem. <laughs> um, so we'll start out with something fun. Uh, on July 6th, 1986. Pretty specific. Which Major League Baseball players hit four home runs in one game? Player, excuse me. Players. In 86? In 1986. My gosh, which baseball player hit four home runs in one game? Bob Horn. Correct. Boom. He nailed it. Wow. I, I saw the my sports trivia team. <laughs> <laughs> I saw the game. Yeah, oh. <laughs> I, I watched it on I watched it on TV, and and when I saw you come in with that hat, it's I, total luck, man. I saw the game, man. Okay, <laughs> I'm not that much of a sports guy. Okay, multiple choice. Uh, what is a hellbender? A hellbender. A lure by Hedden. A giant salamander. A motorcycle by Harley Davidson. Or D. All of the above. Ah, uh, I got an all of the above in there. Hmm. Well, I used to, when I was in school, I managed, or I, uh, I worked with a guy who we sampled 36 streams in Southern Appalachians twice a season. And that was the first time I saw a hellbender. Shocked him up with a backpack shocker. So I'm positive that it's a large salamander. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that it's a Harley Davidson, though. So I'm going to go with just a salamander. No, it, it, it definitely is a salamander, but it's also a lure by Hedden, and it's a well, a, a Harley Davidson motorcycle. Is that a mud puppy? Is it? No, mud puppy's a little bit different. I wasn't different sure about the. I wasn't sure about the lure. I figured somebody probably come out with one of those, but I wasn't sure about the motorcycle. That was a bit of a trick question. Yeah, that was that was tough. All right, so here's another fun one. If a friend isn't catching fish, it's often said. Oh, I know hey, this. Not deep or shallow enough. B. Not holding his mouth right, his or her mouth right. C. Hat is on crooked. D. Simply lacks skill. D. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's That's B. The truth. It's B. It's B. I wonder where that came from. <laughs> I don't know. I heard it all my life. My dad yeah. tell me that. Yeah. Hold your mouth. Hold right. your mouth right. I don't know, man. I don't know what that means. Me neither. Yeah, it's been around a while. Though. It has. Good job. Anyway, that's it. Uh, All right. You did good. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll invite you back now. <laughs> oh, okay, cool. <laughs> well, so uh, Shan O'Gorman. O'Gorman. So guys can go uh, to Instagram and uh, type in aquatic biologist. Aquatic biologist. That's and, how I found and it. And find you. And you, if you've got a very vibrant site, you're always posting something every few hours, seems like. That's, well, I just go with what the questions come in that day. You know, and if somebody gives me a good question, then I'll I'll Answer it. post it. There you know, you I'll post it. You know, if it's a good question, what's the? They're giving me my content. Yeah, you know, right. and I, don't, I just throw it out there. Yeah. Well, look, we sure appreciate you being here, and they love how uh, the, the way you you know talking about managing ponds interests us for sure. There's a lot that we want to learn. I think we covered a lot. There's probably oh look, I learned a lot. And there's no question, question about it. It's so interesting to see like the cornerstones of biology and fisheries all being the same, just the way they're applied. <clears throat> so I love seeing that part of it. That's yeah. for sure. Um, I'm smelling something. Yeah. Well, yeah. Vandy and You're going to stay and eat, aren't you? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, man. So, yeah. So the gamekeeper butcher, he's got his lunch cooking for I us. I think yeah. they were arguing over it being some kind of carbonara and something else. It's and, 
Cajun, I just got the text, it's Cajun Carbonara with Wild Boar Tasso per intern Sam, which is his second first day back on the job, isn't it? It yeah. is, yeah. Sam's back well, in you, the house. Last week you said, Sam, get here. Oh, yeah, here This is. morning he walks in the door. <laughs> yeah, he sure did. <laughs> yeah, so we ask you to stay with us. We're going to do an Ask – do we still have an Ask Daily? We haven't done one in a while. Uh, is there one queued up? Jason's looking at me like a cow looking at a new gate. So Yeah, we can – yeah. Uh, do you remember the Ask Dudley? Can you do that? I can ask Dudley a question. Ask Lanny, why don't you ask Dudley a question and let's do that. I've been meaning to ask you this anyway. Oh, okay. I don't think it's too I'll shoot off the hill. Yeah, I think you know my questions you do really well. You know, uh, y'all helped me out last week with my invasive grass problem. <clears throat> so um I'm actually gonna ask about uh I planted probably who uh it's well, let's see. Six, probably seven years ago, planted a Compton oak uh, in the south side of the house. It's been growing like crazy. Uh, and now, you know, as this home project is winding down, oh, we've, got no. a, we've got a patio project. Mm. So I'm worried about compaction around the roots. What's a good, you know, if you've got an established tree in your backyard and you're wanting to do some work around it, what would be the best thing to do to ensure that you didn't damage the tree? Gotcha. I thought you were going to ask uh, about moving it. Well, which, I thought about that. We could have covered that too. Yeah, I, I, um, I guess that is an option. One one rule of thumb I tell folks is to go fifty percent further out than the edge of the canopy. Okay. So you know, a lot of people say if you're going to fertilize a tree, you want to fertilize the root zone, you know, directly, which is at where the, the, at the, the rain edge would of the fall. canopy. Yeah. But in all reality, the roots go out much further than that. And so uh, it probably wouldn't hurt to get get a few T-posts or some kind of stakes and just flag an area off that's uh, 150% the size of the from the trunk. Gotcha. So go out 50% more than the edge of the canopy mm-hmm. and just fence that area off. And just stay off the roots. Don't put any additional soil on it or any kind of stuff like that? No. Yeah. Um, if, if you do have some compaction issues... You can work on that, but you just want to keep that crew away from the root system. Right. And by going out 50% further than the edge of the canopy, you're, you're, you're doing it right. That ensures what will mm-hmm. happen. And then one more question related And to don't that. ask them to do it. Put a fence around it. Because so, you'll come out there and there'll be some piece of equipment parked under it. <laughs> I often see young trees that were planted by, um, uh, uh, you typically see it in, in urban settings. They put a new street in, they've got a sidewalk and a little berm there, and they plant an oak tree in it. And then, uh, you know, 100 years later, you see that oak tree thriving. So is it just running into that compact soil and then growing around it? Yeah, it's finding a way out, yeah. um, but it, it'll be the death of the tree. I mean, It, it will eventually be the death of the tree, it, even though that, that barrier is already established. That's what I was kind of getting at. So like when a tree is young, if you went ahead and just established that hard line and the roots grew to it, would it have a better chance? I mean, would it make it? Um, it would make it, but I, th- I think in time it's it's just going to run out of – it's same same as farming fish in a pond. You yeah, know, they, there's a finite. There's a finite – area that those roots can grow and uh, there's parts of the soil and all that that they want to be they can go down maybe but that that may not be where they want to go gotcha and they may end up finding some kind of crack but that that'll end up messing it up eventually too so gotcha. cool good question thank you yeah good 
All right. Thank you, Dudley. Well, do we have any more questions, Lanny? You always have always some questions. questions. I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> Look, what, we appreciate Shan being here, and I would encourage people to follow him on Instagram. I would encourage guys to look up our Biologic Perfect Pond Plus fertilizer. Yeah. And uh, it's a fantastic product. And you got, you've tried it. I know you've used it. Yeah. Um, if you want to follow along, I'm, I'm using it on a new pond. I'll be stocking the bass tomorrow and I'm putting everything, you know, in real time. Awesome. On, on Instagram. So if you want to watch it, um, there's, there's, go check my IGTV. You can see the application. I've got a couple of videos. I've been talking about it. Awesome. We need to share that on our socials. Yeah. Uh, and he hashtags. Oh, man. Oh, man. He's really knows. He's what into he that stuff, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we've had fun. I think we've, I think we've learned stuff. Did you learn something, Bobby? I, 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 I know so. I did. Well, the whole Gizzard Chad thing, I got to think through that. I was listening to him talk about that. I, yeah. I want to learn more about those forage species. Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, you know, there's a, there's a couple of really high profile pond lakes i should say where and, and one of them is in texas and they will not they would not want me to say their name but they're using our product out there and they're growing some really big fish they're mm-hmm. pushing 16 and 17 pounds and i know because i talked to the guy who manages the place it's just really really incredible stuff but w- when you stay after and you keep that bloom going and you get those forged fish on there there's the crazy thing can happen. It's like growing big deer in Iowa. Ooh. It's it's very similar to that in a pond. But you can do it in your own pond. It doesn't have to be in, you know, every special pond place. Can be Iowa. Yeah, everywhere. Every, almost, yeah. <laughs> but it's different because you walk up to that pond, you can't see what's going on down there. Mm-hmm. So you have to trust someone like Shan. Absolutely. You, you have to trust a biologist to, to give you advice and then follow that advice to the letter. Yeah, it's a lot more active management than you would think, you know. I think the old tradition is, hey, I'll get my lake right, it'll stay right. But that's the furthest thing from the truth. Yeah, it, 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 that's right. And it can get out of hand quickly in a hurry. Well, we've seen it. You know, multi, how many times have we seen it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah we have. You've got to be willing to take the fish out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Shan, I expect that we'll have you back. Uh, we may Love to have you look back. at some other things that we might could do together. We appreciate you traveling over. So, Absolutely. Uh, That's it. I'm looking at David. Uh, Thank you for being in here, Jason. Thank you for doing what you did. Mike, hopefully he'll be back next week. Yeah. I'm sure wherever he is right now, he's he's texting texting somebody. Won't you say goodbye, Dudley? Goodbye, Dudley. Get us out of here, Cleve. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Gamekeeper Podcast. And be sure to tune in again. Subscribe to Gamekeeper Farming for Wildlife magazine. And don't miss the Mossy Oak Properties Fistful of Dirt podcast with my good buddy, Ronnie Cuz Strickland.